You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. Welcome on this third Sunday of Advent. I'm so thankful that we sing that song. Chris, thanks for leading us. Um, What a powerful hymn. What a powerful hymn to be able to say, no matter what's happening, no matter, no matter my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. You know, for someone to sing that and to be able to say that and declare that in such a chaotic world, it must mean that a person would possess a measure of peace. Something from outside of them has done something to them that has put them at peace that says, it is well. It is well with my soul. I trust you, God. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning is peace. On this third Sunday of Advent, we turn our attention to peace. We're only two weeks away from Christmas. Isn't that crazy? Who's excited? Anybody excited? Kids are excited. Uh, I got in the Christmas spirit last night. I haven't been feeling well this week, but I got in the Christmas spirit last night. Uh, My son Peyton and I went cruising the neighborhood looking at Christmas lights, and we found Clark Griswold's house last night. (laughs) If you want to know where it is, let me know afterward. I'll tell you, where, tell you where it is. And it put me a bit in the Christmas spirit. We got back to our house and we pulled into the driveway and, da- and, and Peyton was basically like, Dad, our house just looks pathetic compared to that. <laughs> and I told him, I said, you're right, buddy, it, it does, but there's always next year. Uh, people love a good comeback story. So, so maybe, maybe next year for us at our house. But getting in the Christmas spirit, we're only, we're only two weeks away. I'm excited to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Um, And as we make our way toward Christmas morning, we continue on in our journey of Advent, our journey of waiting, of anticipating, preparing our hearts for the arrival of Christ. That's what Advent is all about. The word Advent means arrival, and where we remember the first coming of Christ, his first arrival, just as God promised. We consider all that it means for us, and as we anticipate and look ahead to his promised second coming, and all that it will bring when Jesus comes again as king. This morning, we are looking at peace. What does it mean? The peace that we have because Christ has come and will come again. I want you to think for a minute about peace. What is peace to you? What is peace to you? Maybe for some of you, it's that feeling after a long day of work when you get home and you sit on the couch. (sighs) Peace. Maybe that's what it means to you. Maybe for others of you with young kiddos, peace is that moment when finally all the kids are in bed and they've really this time stayed in bed. (laughs) And you sit down and you you have a moment of peace. What is peace to you? You see, these these moments of peace that we experience throughout everyday life are not really the peace that the Bible talks about when it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. In other words, when we look at the Bible, peace is not a moment. It can spark in a moment, and we believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit produces peace in us as we keep in step with him and walk with him. But peace isn't found in little moments. The Bible tells us that peace is a person. Peace is a person. Ephesians 2.14 says that he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He doesn't just give peace. He is our peace. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. Three things, if you're taking notes. First, why do we need peace? Why do we need Christ to be our peace? Second, what does it mean for Jesus to be our peace? And then third, I want to show us 
how the New Testament calls us in light of Christ to live as people of peace in a chaotic world. Let me pray for us and we'll get into those three points. Let's pray together. Lord, we continue in the spirit of worship this morning as we open your word. We continue in a spirit of anticipation as we await the arrival of Christ. And we pray that as we look at the peace that has come to us in Christ, the peace that has been restored through Christ, and the peace that will come in full upon the return of Christ, we pray that you would stir our hearts this morning, that you would stir our minds, that some of us, you would wake us up from our sleep. We've been sleepwalking. Would you wake us up to what is real and what is eternal? Pray that you would encourage those who are discouraged this morning by the truth of the fact that Jesus has made peace. You are our peace. And I pray that you would open the eyes of anyone here this morning that has not received you, that is not at peace with God through Jesus Christ, that you would open their eye, the eyes of their heart and that they would believe upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Has anyone ever heard the name Bruce Barenfather? Anybody? Anybody heard Bruce Barenfather? Okay, let me tell you about Bruce Barenfather. I read about him this week, and I thought it was really interesting. Bruce, uh, he's a well-known British cartoonist. So some of you aren't up on your British cartoons. Um, he's a well-known British cartoonist, but more than that, he's known for a memoir that he wrote about World War I. Bruce was a British soldier during World War I, and on Christmas Eve, 1914, Bruce found himself on the front line of the battle against the Germans. I want you to imagine this. This was Bruce's reality, 1914 Christmas Eve. He is huddled in a trench. He's shivering from the cold. He's wondering if he will ever make it home alive as people around him are dying as they are regularly carrying bodies, dead bodies, and uh, back and pulling them back onto their side of the, of the battleground. And so he's huddled into this trench. He's shivering. He's kind of lost in war. And then all of a sudden, about 10 p.m., he hears the faint sound of singing. What is that? Someone's singing? Imagine being in a trench in World War I. Think about the last time that you actually heard someone singing. Think about the other noises and the sounds that you hear. Bruce hears singing, and then all of a sudden he realizes it's the tune of Christmas carols. He hears Christmas carols, and he hears them coming from the other side of the battlefield from the German side of the battlefield. And it gets louder, and it gets louder, and all of a sudden, from his side of the battlefield, he writes, Bruce writes about all of this in his memoir, from his side of the battlefield, he starts to hear singing. The British soldiers, soldiers join in with the Germans, singing in English, singing along these Christmas carols. So come, O come, Emmanuel, is the one that he remembers the most. He writes, he says, suddenly, as we're singing, we heard confused shouting from the other side. Everybody stopped. It got quiet. We listened. The shout came again louder. It was from a German soldier shouting in a heavenly, heavily accented English. Come over here. Come on. Come over here. Can you imagine this? What happens next is stunning. The soldiers from both sides, they start to cautiously make their way one by one, few at a time, out of their trenches, out into the open, into what we call no man's land. Amidst the barbed wire mess of a war zone where the British and the Germans, prompted by singing Christmas carols and fellowship, they declared 
a ceasefire, a Christmas Eve ceasefire. This has become known as the 1914 Christmas truce. Anybody heard of that? Yeah, so you've heard of that. Some of you have heard about that. Yeah. Amazing. On this day, the British and the German soldiers, they found themselves laughing together, joking together, exchanging gifts to one another. They give gifts. They exchange cigarettes and wine as gifts. Interesting. I guess you give what you have when you're in the middle of a war zone. They play soccer together. They even join together on the blood-stained battlefield to help one another repair their trenches and, dare, and, and bury the dead. Stunning. Baron Father writes about this in detail. So do many other soldiers. Jay Redding wrote a letter that he sent home and he described it this way to his family. He said, we did not fire that day. Everything was so quiet. It seemed like a dream. We were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours later, a few hours earlier, we were trying to kill. It's incredible. On this Christmas Eve and into this Christmas day, warring nations, weary soldiers stopped killing one another and stood at peace, even in fellowship. And as I read about this this week, I couldn't help but think, what a contrast. What an unbelievable contrast that is. I mean, think about it. What a contrast between what life on earth could be and what life on earth truly is, right? I mean, what life on earth could be peace and fellowship among men, amongst nations, giving and receiving, singing praises and unity to God, as opposed to what life on earth is, warring and fighting and division and conflict. See, something special happened on that Christmas Eve, 1914, that illustrates for us what is only possible in Jesus Christ. I believe it's no coincidence that it was the words of Christmas hymns on the lips of soldiers that reminded them that peace on earth is actually possible. Did you know that the concept of peace on earth never existed prior to the birth of Christ? Prior to the third and fourth centuries when Christianity started to change the world, there was no concept of peace on earth in ancient civilizations. Power on earth, yes, certainly. Peace on earth, nobody talked that way. Nobody talked that way at all until Christ came and the early Christians began to live as peacemakers. And something about the thought of Christ coming as the peace of God extended to us inspired a Christmas Eve truce. It's a contrast to the normal operating system of the world. What is the normal operating system of this world that we live in, this world of sin and death? Well, the reality of life on this earth is that nations war against one another. Jealousy, contempt, the will to power, it has fueled bloodshed. Human beings killing other human beings created in the image of God. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills Abel. This is the reality of life on earth. Nations warring. It's not just nations though. The reality of life on earth in a world of sin and death is people warring against people, isn't it? Neighbors warring against neighbors, raging against neighbors. Co-workers at odds, spouses at odds, families at odds, school boards and city councils raging in dysfunction over ideologies. Even local churches can wander from the peace of the Spirit of Christ and can be full of bitterness and anger and relational disunity. Fragmentation is everywhere. Being at odds or at war is our human condition as human beings. And what's the source of all this? Why is this 
the reality of life on earth? Well, the scriptures tell us that the source of our at-oddsness, of our worrying, it actually starts with a lack of peace within each of our souls. We're not at peace with ourselves. And so because we're not at peace with ourselves, we're jealous, we are full of malice, we envy, we are full of hatred, we're insecure, whatever it might be. Because we're not at peace with ourselves, because we're not at peace with God. In fact, to understand this, we have to go back to the beginning of the biblical story. If you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 3 with me. If you have a Bible on your phone, you can go there. If you have a Bible in front of you, turn to Genesis chapter 3. When we turn to the Bible and start to try and understand our human condition, it really makes a lot of sense of our world. It makes a lot of sense of our world. In, in the Bible, the word for peace in the Bible is the word shalom. If you're taking notes, write that down. Shalom. That's the biblical word for peace. Now, we don't actually get that word until Genesis chapter 15. It's the first time that we get that word. But in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the concept of shalom, of peace, is everywhere. It's everywhere. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for created in the Hebrew is the word bara. And it doesn't just imply that God creates uh, material things, not like God's like an elf in Santa's workshop, just creating kind of whatever's next on the conveyor belt. That's not the concept of just creating material things. It's more than that. God is creating the material things, but he's creating it with a sense of order, with a sense of harmony, with a sense of unity, like a master conductor of an orchestra who is uh, pulling notes and instrumentation and pulling things together in perfect order and harmony, or for the jocks in the room, like an offensive coordinator who's uh, dialing up the perfect plays where, where routes just work perfectly to score the touchdown. Uh, maybe that didn't land with you. Sorry about that. God creates with purpose, with order. He gives harmony to all that he makes, and the result of God's creation in Genesis chapter one and two is shalom. It's peace. Genesis one and two, we read about it. God fashioned the world, beautified, ready for mankind to enjoy and steward. It's a world laced with peace, with shalom. I want you to, you could think of it this way. There is peace with God that gives a peace to man which then flows to peace with one another, naked and unashamed, secure in the person of God and in the, the lordship of God. Peace with God leads to peace with self, leads to peace with others, which leads to peace on earth. This is the picture in Genesis 1 and 2. But then we turn the pages to Genesis 3 and we read about what was lost. What is it that sin actually disrupts? Is it the, the material? No, it's not the material. What sin disrupts is shalom. It's peace. I want to read Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And this is where we read the tragic story of shalom lost in this world that we live in. Genesis 3, starting in 7. This is after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They're deceived by the serpent. They try to be their own God, run their own life. Here's the result. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you see shalom disrupted? Do you see it? All of a sudden, rather than delighting and rejoicing in the presence of God, all of a sudden now I'm kind of in this awkward, hostile uh, position with God. I'm hiding from him. I'm afraid of him. Why would they be afraid of God at this point in the story? He's crowned them with dignity. He's given them his presence. But all of a sudden now, because of sin, we're hiding from God. We are covering and clothing ourselves, trying to cover our own shame. We're inadequate. We're not enough. All that internal stuff that leads to lack of peace with one another, insecurity, fear, guilt, shame, hatred. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. I feel sick almost every time I read this account. You can just feel the devastation, can't you? Like you can just feel what's lost. You can feel the disorder, the disruption of peace, of inner peace, peace with God, peace with one another. You can feel the panic and the chaos, can't you? It feels a lot like this world that we live in. And as we continue reading, we see the consequences of sin setting in on the world. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The earth is now chaotic. Work now is hard and cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. If you, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And you see the consequences of sin setting in. No longer is there peace with God. No longer is there peace with self. No longer is there peace with one another. No longer is there peace with the creation. And most painful of all, sin, the great separator, the divider, separates man from his creator. Verse 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. God's perfect, out of God's perfect presence, they go. What is the result? Shalom, peace is no more. And as we read the rest of the biblical story, here is what we see. Let me sum up for you the whole Old Testament and human history in one sentence. Are you ready? Here's what we see from this point forward. The world becomes a war zone. That's the result. 
the, word, the world becomes a war zone, warring with God, warring with self, warring with one another. The desire for power and pleasure is now what runs through the veins of human beings, not the desire for peace. You see, this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2. This reality, this human condition, is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, we are dead in our sins, hostile to God. We're not at peace. The harmony and the wholeness that God created, that he barad in the beginning, is lost. But thankfully, but God, because of God, but for God's steadfast love and abundant grace, it's not lost forever. That's why we celebrate the coming of Christ. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, as sad as it is, as almost gut-wrenching as it is to read or depressing as it is to recount, you're like, I'm glad I came to church two weeks before Christmas. As sad as it is, as gut-wrenching as it is to recount, there is hope that flickers. A promise was made in Genesis chapter 3 that gets pulled like a thread throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I want you to know your Bible is not a bunch of kind of random moralistic stories. It's one story. There's this thread that gets pulled from Genesis 3 throughout the rest of the Old Testament, throughout, uh, human, throughout ancient history, and the promise is found in Genesis 3.15. You can look there if you want, if you have your Bible open. In Genesis 3.15, as, uh, as, as God is dealing with Adam and Eve in their sin, he makes this promise. He says that there will be an offspring of the woman. In other words, there will be a son. He promises a son will come. And he says that this son, though his heel will be bruised, though he will be bruised, he will be wounded, he will crush the head of the serpent. He will deliver a death blow to Satan and to sin. There's this beautiful promise in Genesis 3.15. And then in Genesis 3, 21, flip over to 3, look at verse 21 in Genesis 3. Not only do we get the promise, but then we get this beautiful act of God, something that we often can just read past in our Bible in Genesis 3. It's this beautiful act, this beautiful moment of God foreshadowing what it is that he will do through this son, through this seed of the woman. In verse 21, it says, the Lord God, before he sends them out of the garden, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. He removes their fig leaves, and he clothes them. Do you see this gesture? Have you considered this? God essentially is saying here, I will cover your shame. I will cover your shame. God is essentially saying here, Human self-saving, human self-redeeming, human self-covering will not be the way back to God. God will do the covering. God will do the saving. And it's important that we realize that for the, the sin and the shame of Adam to be covered by skins in this moment as they go out of the garden, something innocent that day had to die, didn't it? Blood had to be shed. Do you see what this is pointing us to? 
Do you see the thread that then gets pulled through the rest of the Old Testament? God makes good on this promise. It comes all the way from Abram and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then throughout history and throughout kingdoms. God works to reveal his purpose and eventually the sin and Satan defeating a son was born. And there is no coincidence that Isaiah says he ought to be called the Prince of Peace. He is the restorer of shalom. He's the restorer of peace with God. He's the only one who can bring peace within, within self, so, so that we could sing a song like, it is well with my soul, whatever my lot, whatever suffering or sin or disappointment or tragedy that I might experience, it is well with my soul because I have been made right with God. God is in me and I am, I am in him. The Prince of Peace, the restorer of shalom. You see, on the night that Jesus was born, Luke tells us that these heavenly messengers appear. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. On the night that Jesus was born, these heavenly messengers appear, and it is a message of joy. Yes, he tells them to rejoice, to go be tellers. He wants the shepherds to go be tellers. But look closely at what he says. Luke chapter 2, 11 through 14. The angel appears and he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so after all of these years and generations of waiting, God has made good on the promise that the seed of the woman, the son of the woman, would come. He would be the Christ. He would crush sin and Satan and deliver his people from their enemies. In verse 12, And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Look at this. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace. Shalom. It's, it, 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 God is barring again. He's creating again. This time he's restoring. He's redeeming. He's going to lace the world with shalom Again, from the perspective of heaven, there's rejoicing. The heavens literally open up, rip apart. Peace with God is now available. Unashamedness in the human soul is now available. Relational reconciliation is now available because the Son has come. This is good news. And as the gospel story rolls on, we start to really understand the significance of Jesus' perfect life, his sinless life, of Jesus' gruesome, sacrificial death on a Roman cross. We start to see the significance of it, don't we? He is the one that makes peace between man and God. He is the, the innocent one, the spotless lamb who dies for the people, whose covers the sin and the shame of fig leaf wearing sinners. Paul says this in Romans chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus makes peace between God and man. By grace through faith, we are invited back into the Father's presence perfectly into his presence. We are, by faith in Jesus, clothed 
with the righteousness of Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus right now, God looks at you and he doesn't see your sin and your failures and your shortcomings and your shame, though, though you might feel it. God doesn't see it. He sees you clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He's clothed you with the skins of his son, to say it that way. This is good news. You are at peace with God. And he not only makes peace between God and man, the Christmas story tells us anything. It's not that God is just offering peace to human souls, but he's offering peace to the whole world. Jesus not only makes peace between God and man, he makes peace between man and man. He is a redeemer in every way. The same blood of Christ that brings us near to God is the same power that reconciles us to one another. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15 that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is here addressing the ethnic divide between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And it was a deep divide. It was a, it was a divide that eclipses the political divide of our day today. If you think our world and our day is divided today, if you think the hostility between people in our world and our day today, the, the, the divide between Jew and Gentile, it's hard to even explain how holistic it was in every way. Enemies in every way. And Paul is saying, through faith in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling us, making us one. He makes us one. See, the earliest, the earliest Christians, we understand now why it is that they champion peace, don't we? We understand now why it is that they, in the third and fourth century, completely changed the world. There's a book that I'm reading right now. It's called The Air We Breathe. And, and the author talks about how in our world today, what people don't understand about in our world today is that the air that we breathe is Christianity in the West. In other words, He's, he compares it to this. He's, he says it's like, it's like flowers that have been cut from the stem. The world today, we, we value things like peace and unity and equity and progress. Right? These are all things that you hear people talking about. It's like the bloom of the flower. But yet we've cut it and we've separated it from the stem. Nobody on the world in the world talked about these things until Jesus Christ came and rose from the dead and Christians changed the world. Then all of a sudden, there was a framework for peace. There was a framework for building hospitals and caring for the sick. There was a framework for ending slavery and creating, cre treating all people with human dignity. Christians, because of the risen, living Jesus, changed the world. And in our world today, we want peace without the presence of God. That's what we want in our world today. And as we look at the scriptures, as we look at what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying that peace only comes in Jesus. Peace with God Real, true peace with one another, peace on earth that's found nowhere else but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me try and bring it all together. The claim of Christianity is this. This is the claim of Christianity. It's that on a Roman cross, God has made the peace that we desperately need. 
on a Roman cross. On a Roman cross, God has offered peace to you and peace to us and peace to this world that we desperately need. Think about this. On the Roman cross, the most hostile, most violent way a person could die on the planet, God offers peace. What a paradox. What a contrast. That's a Christmas truce 1914 kind of contrast. The Roman cross, the way in which Rome administered its rule and kept order. I wouldn't quite call it peace, but it was an attempt at shalom to, to, to kind of keep order and maintain power. Rome had this, this is, this is what Rome used. It was the cross. They called it Pax Romana. It was basically, we're going we're gonna to keep order and we're going to maintain rule by killing our enemies through crucifixion. The very son of God restores order and makes peace by dying for his enemies. Do you see the paradox? Do you see the promise? I want you to hear something. You will never rejoice and be glad in the cross of Christ until you first realize that your sin has made you an enemy of God. You will never rejoice and be glad in the cross of Christ until you come to realize that your sin has made you an enemy of God. You will never rejoice in the cross until you see Christ on the cross paying the price for your treason before God. And you didn't deserve any of this. It isn't earned. It's given to you freely by the grace of a loving God who sees you, who sees your fig leaves, who has compassion on you. And the scriptures tell us he chose you before the foundations of the world to have your sin and your shame covered by Christ. To make peace with God. To bring those who are far off near through the blood of Christ. And Christians in the first century got this. This is why they changed the world. They understood this. This is why they started to love their enemies, started to make peace. See, when we get the mercy and grace of God for you and for me, it changes the way that we live and it changes the way that we relate. One author put it this way. He, put, he said, for Christians who truly get the gospel, peace becomes our heritage and peace becomes our hope. I wanna, I wanna wrap up with this. Peace becomes our heritage and peace becomes our hope. Those who truly get the gospel from Genesis, see the thread pulled all the way through to see Christ, who he is and why he's come, what he's done, what it means for who you are now, how he's called us to live until the day that he returns again. For Christians who truly get the gospel, peace becomes our heritage and peace becomes our hope. We become a people of peace. What does it mean? Well, a heritage is something that you inherit. A heritage is something that you don't earn. A heritage is something that you belong to, that you're grafted into. And if you are in Christ Jesus, I want you to know that peace is your heritage. Peace is your heritage. Peace has been made for you. It's something that you don't earn. Peace with God right, is something that you don't earn. It's something that you receive as a gift. You are God's beloved. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your sufferings, regardless of your struggle with sin right now, today, you are at peace with God. God is at peace with you because of Jesus Christ. As cheesy as it might sound, as cheesy as it might sound, nobody knows what tomorrow holds, but we do know who holds tomorrow. That's true. 
what peace that that gives us. Peace is our heritage. That truth should give us peace in anxious times. Something, I want you to think about something that you've been anxious about lately. Or something that's been making you anxious lately. Scriptures say that because of the gospel, peace is your heritage. Will you remember that God is for you? That if God is for you, the scriptures say, who can be against you? Would you remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? You are at peace with God today because of Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Peace is your heritage. Would you receive it today? Would you take hold of it? Would you drink deep of it? Would you let your soul exhale today? And the scriptures tell us that peace is our hope. If we get the gospel and we know that peace is our heritage, we also know that it is our hope. Hope is what you look forward to. Hope is what you live for. Peace is your future, the scriptures tell us. Full and final shalom, peace, will be restored on this earth. It's how the biblical story ends. It's what's coming for you. It's your hope. Revelation 21 tells us that God will barah again upon the return of Christ. He will redeem. He will restore this time a new heaven and a new earth. And we get this beautiful picture in Revelation 21 of your future. Peace with God, peace with self, peace with others, peace on earth. It's a world of no mores. All the things that tear us apart or tear you up will be no more. No more abuse, no more addiction, no more adultery. No more Alzheimer's, no more anxiety, no more cancer, no more depression, no more divorce. The things that tear us apart or tear you up will be no more. No more funerals, no more lies, no more loneliness, no more murder, no more miscarriage, no more needs, no more orphans, no more poverty, no more racism, no more slander, no more suicide, no more unbelief. Christ will reign in full. Shalom will be restored, and what a day that will be. What a day that will be. See, this is your future. Peace is your heritage, Christian. Peace is your hope. And until that day, those who belong to Jesus are to live as people of peace, people of great heritage and of great hope in a chaotic world. Here's what that means. It means we don't add to the chaos. There are too many Christians adding to the chaos today. There are too many Christians. We, we ought to be like the soldier in the trench who starts to sing the carol. That's what we ought to be, people of peace. We ought to be the courageous ones because of Christ who step out into a war zone and cultivate friendship in a divided and polarized world who give gifts and serve. Maybe not give cigarettes, but we give gifts and we serve in a chaotic world. Why? Because of the gospel, because of Christ himself, who is our peace, who is coming again to bring us peace. As I close, I want you to think about one question. Would you just consider this this morning? What would it look like for you today, not just to hear about theoretical Advent peace, but to actually receive it? What does that look like for you, to actually receive it. The fact that hope is your heritage. Peace is your heritage. What week is it? Peace is your heritage and peace is your hope. What would that look like for you to receive it and to embody it? To not just hear the good news of Jesus this morning, but to let the spirit change you this morning. I think maybe for some of you, it looks like just letting your soul exhale. 
Colossians 3, 15 exhorts us because of the gospel to let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Just to let your soul exhale. Cease from striving. All the people pleasing, the fear of man, the overburdening of yourself, the deep sense of shame that you feel over your struggle with sin. You're at peace with God because of Jesus Christ. You've been brought near to him by the blood of the lamb. Be at peace. Maybe for others, it's about relational. Uh, you're relationally at odds. There's a relationship in your life, relationships in your life, or maybe spheres of relationships where there's just hecticness. Would you remember that Christ calls you to be a peacemaker? Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort. <laughs> Ball's in your court. <laughs> make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Because Christ has made you his enemy, his beloved, you can be a peacemaker. Romans 12.18, the instruction is clear. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Even those outside the church is what he's talking about. And finally, the words of Jesus. Let's end with those. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What a gift we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the restorer of shalom. And that peace is more than a feeling in a moment. That peace is a person. And you've come near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You've torn down the hostility between us and God. You've covered our shame. You've removed our fig leaves. You've robed us and wrapped us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Pray that you would help us be a church that lets the peace of Christ rule our hearts. That we wouldn't be anxious. That we wouldn't be wandering from you. That we wouldn't be caught up in the fear of man and in people pleasing, but that we would stand with the confidence and the courage to know that we are enough in Christ Jesus. That whatever our lot, you would teach us to say it is well with our soul. Help us to be peacemakers in our relationships. I pray for the marriage in this room this morning where there is tension and there is hostility, that you, Jesus, would be our peace. That repentance from sin and forgiveness would be extended and peace would be made because it is available in Jesus Christ. For the families where there's tension and toxicity, that you would help the Christian in this room as we head into the holiday season to be peacemakers, loving our enemies even when they don't deserve it because you loved us. And help us, Father, as a local church, as an expression of your body, to be conduits of your peace where we work, where we live in our neighborhoods, in this community, in this world? Will we not add to the chaos, but will we point to the day in which you will come, the day of no mores? Help us to love and help us to live for you until that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.